It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And the language of that text would lead us to believe that it was outsiders who looked at them, observed what they were doing, what they were into, what they talked about, heard probably their message, and then began to call them Christians, the the people of the Christ or the Messiah. Now why is that? It's because those people, outsiders, could look at these other people, the disciples of Jesus, and they could observe them, they could hear them, they could watch them, read their tweets, read their Facebook posts. They would say, you know, if I had one word to describe these people, it would be Christians. These people are, are obsessed with this Christ. This Messiah. All they talk about is this Messiah. They're all about this this Christ. And the same ought to be true for us. We are, hopefully, Christians. We're the people of the Christ. The people of the Messiah. Jesus Christ is our God. We worship Him. We obey Him. We take refuge in Him. He is the rock that we cling to. Jesus Christ is our atoning Lamb. He's the only sacrifice for sins. It was He and He alone who has taken upon Himself the wrath that we deserve, the punishment for our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in Him, in in union with Him by His Spirit, we would be made the righteousness of God, declared to be righteous even though we are not of ourselves righteous because of what He's done. He was slain so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ is our exemplar. He's established the paradigm or the pattern for His body, which is the church. We see this in texts like Romans 8, verse 17, speaking of our our relationship to God as Father. If we are God's children, then we are heirs, Paul says. Just like any son would be an heir to what his father has. If we're God's children, we're His heirs heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ because He's called our elder brother. We're with Him. He's an heir. We are heirs. We're fellow heirs with Him provided, here's the stipulation, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. You see, Christ has inherited a kingdom through His suffering and death. And we inherit with Him as we follow Him in His sufferings and death. After His sufferings, He was raised and glorified. If we follow Him in His sufferings, we too will be raised and glorified. We will inherit with Him and be glorified with Him on the condition that we follow His pattern. That's the paradigm, the pattern. Suffering leads to and precedes glory. This is also true when we consider the concept of Christ's victory and the victory of the church. Just think about Christ for a moment, what we know from the Gospels. It wasn't long after His birth that Herod sought to have Him put to death. But He failed. It didn't work. But it didn't take long for Him to immediately be opposed. We've got to kill this one. It didn't work. After His baptism, Satan tempts Him in the wilderness. He, He, in essence, offers to Christ all that was to be His except without the suffering. Just go ahead and bow to me and I'll give you everything you've come for. And Christ refused. Satan fails. 
during his ministry, recognizing that he could provide a lot of things by way of temporal comforts, people tried to take him and make him king rather than submitting to the fact that he was already king, that his kingdom had already come. Christ again refuses to set up his kingdom in man's way. Why? Because as he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And throughout the Gospels, we see him making statements like, my time has not yet come. And then the evangelists, as they track out the, the uh, events of his life, they will say, for his time had not yet come. But then at the right time, he says, the hour has come. And he goes to the cross. And he dies. It, it, he, he gives himself into the hands of the people, the same people who wanted to kill him and wanted to make him king. Well, they just decide, well, if we can't make him king, we'll just kill him. So he gives himself to that. And it's very interesting if you trace that out. They, they wanted to kill him. Some people wanted to kill him. Some people wanted to exalt him. But nothing could happen. They couldn't do either of them until his time came. Until his time came, all of the attempts of man and Satan to thwart the plan of God were impotent. But once his time came, he actually reprimanded anyone who would stop the plan. Why is that? Because it was through His apparent defeat that the victory of redemption was to be won. Christ lived out His life, carried out His ministry, and set up His kingdom on the earth. And while He did that, there were some who wanted to stop it. There were some who wanted to go about it by carnal means to enjoy the temporal fruit that He could provide. But the entire time, it was Christ Himself who was in control of the plot. And having set that paradigm... It's the same with the church as we follow His pattern. We are His mystical body. The church is the manifestation of His kingdom on the earth. And as the church carries out her mission, following our Lord, there are many who want to stop it. There are many who want to arrest the mission and go about it by carnal means to produce carnal fruit. All the while, Christ is in control of the plot. Now... Again, following Christ, we're going to know sorrow, we're going to know grief, we're going to share in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul said, and that's how we come to know Him, by sharing in His sufferings. But again, until our time comes, all of the, the attempts of man and Satan to thwart the plan of God are impotent. That goes for us as individuals, as we just heard. That goes for the church as a whole. We are invincible until the second that God has ordained for our work to be finished. Once our time does come, nothing will stop the kingdoms of this world from making war against the church. Why? Because it's through this apparent defeat that the victory is to be won. Christ doesn't lose. The church doesn't lose. But we also don't win according to human reasoning. We win according to the pattern set forth by Christ. We win according to the wisdom of God. And this is what we've seen time and time again in the Revelation. We've, we've been reminded over and over, especially that as the church carries out her mission, there are some who want to stop it, but Christ is in control of the plot. In, in the, the seven churches, the original audience of this epistle, people wanted to stop what was happening but they couldn't stop it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ as King Mediator. 
directing the affairs of history and even the evil plots of Satan as a means to build His church in the world. That's what we've seen. Six times already we've seen that. Over and over and over. The present time is the time of gospel flourishing and the building and growth of the church. At the end of the age, there will be a time of increased and severe persecution. At that time, Christ will return in power to destroy His enemies and glorify His church. We've seen it six times already. And now we come to the seventh and final vision, which covers chapters 20 to 22. Now some of you are probably aware that these final chapters, and especially chapter 20, uh, are among the more debated sections of the Revelation as far as interpretation. And the disagreements concerning chapter 20 itself are not light things. They're not little things. Uh, they, they are expansive. They extend all the way down to the fundamental hermeneutic that someone uses to interpret the entire Bible. It's not a light thing. And so for that reason, what I want to do this morning is give an overview and a defense of how I intend to approach and interpret these final three chapters. And so this might seem more like a lecture than a sermon, but I'm hoping that we'll will attain to something a little bit more than just intellectual stimulation. I, I've, I've, I've got some, some encouragements to bring at the end, but we're going to have to be uh, looking at the, the text a lot. We're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. We're going to be comparing things, and so it might seem like just a, a Bible study lesson. In vindicating my method for approaching these chapters, I think it's absolutely necessary to show how this interpretation fits in with the, the rest of the epistle in its various sections. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to do three things, three, three major uh, headings. First, I want to describe and defend my interpretation of chapters 20 through 22, or the seventh vision. Then I want to give a comparison of this vision with the first vision, chapters 2 and 3, to show how this seals up and brings to the, the fullest light what, was, uh, what began to be opened up there in that first vision. And then I want to explain how this seventh vision completes what began in the fourth vision, which was chapter 12. So we're basically going to look at this last vision, then compare it to the very beginning of the book, and then go back to, chapters, to, to chapter 12 specifically and see how it compares with that fourth, fourth vision. All of this, I trust, is going to serve to support what we've seen over and over throughout the book, and that is that though the church must follow the pattern set forth by Christ, and that will lead to suffering... Christ remains supreme over all. And He will see to it that His church is brought through unto glory like Himself. So first then, I want to describe and defend my interpretation of the seventh vision. And this is going to sound like an apologetic. But I hope and I believe that what I'm about to say for most of us is very evident and clear. And there, there probably is not going to be a lot of argumentation the reason I do this is because that you're going to encounter a lot of people in our area who, will, who do not agree with what I'm about to show. And I think that doing it this way will help you to build confidence in your ability to defend the Scriptures. Now, we, we, we immediately want to say, well, you know, Spurgeon said the Scriptures like a lion. You know, you just let it out. Exactly. I want to show you how the Scriptures themselves tell us how to interpret this portion of Scripture. And I, and I do believe that the errors that into which many fall are errors where they have allowed something outside of the Scriptures to tell them how to interpret it. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the newspaper and the globe. I got a newspaper in one hand and a globe in, in the other arm, and I can figure out how to interpret this book here. What I'm, I want to show you that that's not how we read the Bible. So, uh, first, we need to be reminded of how this epistle works. How does it work? If somebody says, well, this is my interpretation of the Revelation, then you could say, well, whoa, whoa, let's, let's stop and ask, how are we supposed to read the whole thing? Don't just focus in on a small part first. How do we read the whole thing? How does this epistle work? First, we've seen over and over that there is a, an aspect of parallelism in this book. It is a series of visions that all run parallel with each other. That doesn't mean that they're exactly the same things, uh, uh, tit for tat, but they do run parallel, revealing a lot of the same things, just in different ways. So there's a, a parallelism. There is a recapitulation in these visions. All of the visions recapitulate or repeat the same information, just in different ways. So they're parallel, seven visions, and they recap, they recapitulate, repeat a lot of the same things. And there is a progressive movement. As we read from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, there's a progressive movement as we reach further and further into what I've called the eschaton, the eternal state. So each of the seven visions have been revelations of a lot of the same things from different angles with different foci or focal points. As I've said, said several months ago, I've not said anything new after chapter 3. Now that, that presents a little bit of a difficulty when you're preaching it because you think, well, I just said that six weeks ago. But hopefully the imagery has, has uh, given more color to what's being conveyed. Now, so there's parallelism, there's recapitulation, there's progressive movement. And I've said that over and over. And you say, why do you keep reiterating that? Well, let me just give you a great example. And I, and I said this before. In chapter 19, we just read of this great battle where Christ comes in the heavens and makes war with His enemies and destroys them. Now, I'm going to argue that in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we see that exact same vision or that, that exact same battle again. Now... That only makes sense if, if we agree that there's parallelism here. If we don't agree that there's parallelism, then you can say, you're way off. That doesn't make any sense. If we read this chronologically, well, then when we come to read chapter 20, we would say, well, this actually follows. Christ has already come in the clouds. He's already destroyed His enemies at the beginning of chapter 20. And then we would continue to read chronologically. And we would see those events of chapter 20 unfold. You see, this is a major difference in the way we would read the book. The return of Christ, that's sort of a big deal in our study of eschatology. And most of you know that the varying views center around the return of Christ. If you ever hear of terms like pre-millennialism and post-millennialism, the idea is not really about the millennium, but about the return of Christ. When's Jesus coming back? Is He coming back in chapter 19? Or is He coming back in chapter 20? I'm going to argue yes, because there's parallelism. We're seeing the same thing from two different angles. So the, the epistle is written in a progressive, parallel form of recapitulated images. And so in that progressive parallelism, we've come to expect three things in every vision. We come to expect to see something of the present church age something of the end of all things, and something of the eternal state. Or we could say, we've come to expect something of this age, the end of the age, and the age to come. This is the way that the other New Testament authors would describe time. 
Now, look with me at your Bible, and I'm going to just go ahead and show you. I'm going to argue that chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, are a description of the present church age. Right now. I'm going to argue that verses 7 through 15 of that chapter are a description of the end of all things. Or the end of the age. And then I'm going to argue that chapters 21 and 22 describe the eternal state from the perspective of the saints of God. Why? The book was written to the saints of God. Now I need to defend that. So in in order to defend that, what I want to do is sort of work backwards beginning in chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 3. And I've just picked several spots here. There's, you could do this with multiple other verses, but this is just one way to do this. Chapter 22, verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Now notice the overall character of the order of things in chapter 22. There will no longer will there be anything accursed. Cursed things, by the time we get to chapter 22, cursed things are non-existent. They're not there. The curse, we could say, that began in Genesis 3 is gone. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. Well, what does that imply? That implies that prior to this, there were things accursed, but now we've gotten to the point where there are no accursed things. And the centerpiece of the order of this, uh, this, we'll call it this world that we're describing, it says, "...the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it." So we can ask, what is it? Now when we go through this chapter, we'll, uh, this won't be difficult. But, but what is it? Well, let's go back one verse. Actually, let's go back to verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. What's it? It's either, based on this, it's either uh, the river or the tree or the city. Well, I think it's pretty clear that we're talking about the city. The city is the central theme or the centerpiece of this, this world, this order that's being described in chapters 21 and 22. The character of this order is the absence of all things accursed. Nothing cursed. The center of it is the city. Now let me prove that. Well, this actually extends back into chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Still talking about the city. We could go back to verse 10. John has been looking at this city the whole time. But in in verse 10, this angel has carried John away. And it says, "...to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God." You see, the central theme that John's looking at and describing is the city. 
Now before he saw this city, in verse 9, the angel said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he takes him off to a high mountain and he sees a city. The bride and the city are the same thing. Now as, as Bible students, we could ask, I think, what or who is the wife of the Lamb? Who or what is the bride of Christ? The answer is the church is the bride of Christ. And so John is seeing the church described as a bride, illustrated as a city in a world in which there are no cursed things. Look back at 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Not being prepared. She's prepared. The, pre the preparation is done at this point. She's coming down to meet her husband. The city, the New Jerusalem, again is the church. We could go back to 19, chapter 19, verse 7, where we would see that the saints of God are described using the exact same imagery as, as they're being described of, or with here. The bride prepared for her husband. And again, back to 22.3, we're seeing the church, this bride, fully prepared during a time where there is no curse and nothing accursed exists anymore. So I would conclude chapters 21 and 22 are giving us a vision of the church glorified, <clears throat> glorified, prepared in her eternal state. The curse is gone. Now most of you would say, duh. Of all of the things that we, we may have not understood about the revelation, that's actually about the easiest point and I would agree. But there are some who would disagree. Unless we would like to argue that the effects of the fall and all things affected by the fall, that is the curse, is going to be gone prior to the glorified state. Of course, we would understand that this is contrary to the teaching of Scripture and contrary to God's covenant with Noah. That can't happen or God is a liar. 21 and 22 are a description of the glorified church, the eternal state, the age to come. So we've got that. Put that aside. And next we're going to move backwards again. And we're going to see something of the end of all things. Or the end of the, the present age, which obviously precedes the eternal state of glory. In chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, we're just moving backwards. We see a description of the final judgment. We see the issue, or the description of the throne, the great white throne judgment. Earth and sky fled away, or heaven and earth fled away. We see the dead, all of the dead brought up into the judgment. The books were opened, they're judged, and then they are punished, cast into the lake of fire. What's interesting, what I, what, what I want to point out here is in verse 14, it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death is here destroyed. Now the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So then verse 14 here, 14 and 15, describe the very last enemy of God being destroyed. Which would mean that after that, the enemies of God are gone. After death is destroyed, which is the predominant description of the curse, no other enemy of God remains. Death is the curse. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You are dead in trespasses and sins. That's, that, that is the curse. Here, death being destroyed, the curse is gone. So this would precede chapters 21 and 22. 
prior to that final judgment in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 20, we have a recapitulation, recapitulation of the great end time battle which we've already seen. And, and again, we'll uh, hope to prove that once we get there, that we've already seen. That great battle brings an end to, to all of the hostile enemies of God, leading to the final judgment and their ultimate destruction. So then chapter 20, verses 7 to 15, describe the end of all things. And within that we would see the destruction of God's, we could say, uh, created enemies and, uh, or, or human enemies, the enemies uh, of the church and also the spiritual enemies of death and Hades being cast into the lake of fire. That's the end of the age. That's how it's going to end. What does that leave? Well, that leaves a description of something of the church age, something of the present time in which we live that began with the work of Christ and His incarnation and will conclude at His return. Well, He's going to return when He judges His enemies. So, verses 1 to 6, I would argue, are a description of the church age. Now, because we're... We're going to be looking at this passage in, in a lot of detail starting next Lord's Day. I don't want to get into much. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I knew that there was no possible way that I could even begin to move into some of this stuff today. But I just want to show you something. Verse 4 of chapter 20 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. Who is this? This is Christians. These are the saints of God who have died. Some of them have died because they've been beheaded. They've died as martyrs. The others have died for no other... For, for, it doesn't tell us how they died, but they even in their death, they never took the mark of the beast. They never surrendered over to the, the, the enemy. They remained marked for God. So these are, the we would call them the Christian dead. Souls of the Christian dead. They're not yet glorified because they're just souls. They have no bodies. So they're not glorified. So we've got dead Christians in this state where they, they have died, but they've not yet been glorified. That's verse 4. Moving into verse 5, the rest of the dead, well, who would that be? That would be the wicked dead. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there we've got the lost, the, the wicked world who have died. They're not raised either. So we're seeing this scene in which you've got Christians who are dead. You've got non-Christians who are dead. None of them have been raised or glorified yet. They're just in this state of the dead. And the time period that is described is a thousand years. Verse 3 says that this, uh, this serpent, the devil, had been thrown into a pit. The pit's shut and sealed so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That's the same time period. This thousand years is the same length of time as when there are dead saints and dead wicked, the wicked dead, prior to their resurrection, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, which we know takes place at Christ's return. So chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 is describing a time when there are saints who have died, there are lost men who have died, none of them have been raised, none of them are glorified, because Christ has not returned yet. 
So it's clear, and I hope to prove this even more clearly in the weeks to come, that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 is the seventh vision's description of the present church age from God's perspective. It's now. It's the time between the advents of Christ. Saints are bearing witness and they're dying. They're not yet glorified. They're in what we might call the the intermediate state. So then chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 describe the church age, the present time. Prior to Christ's return, verses 7 to 15 describe the end of the age, the end of all things, the return of Christ and the judgment. And chapters 21 and 22 describe the eternal state of the glorified church. So that's my interpretation broadly and a, uh, something of a logical, exegetical defense of that, even though I hope that you'll see that when we get into the, the finer details, it, it, it makes even more sense. Uh, if you've not studied these things, then you're, all, you're, you're wondering already, well, the devil's bound. I thought the devil was still doing things. Well, we're going we're to answer those things. So that's, that's my interpretation. Secondly, then, a comparison of this vision with the first vision. I want you to see is that now that we've made it to this seventh vision, we've reached all the way to the far end of the book of the Revelation, which began in chapters 2 and 3. Not in the obvious sense that, right, we began in chapter 1 and now we're in chapter 20. But in, in the, the, the substance of the revelatory data, we began here with some things that were not super clear. Now that we've come to the end, hopefully it's all very clear. I want you to see that. Uh, remember that under the implication of the progressive parallelism, we would expect to find that this final vision describes some of the same things that we saw in the first vision, but it just does so in a way that has greatly advanced the story into the eternal state, into the eschaton. I described chapters 2 and 3 this way. I said it's like we're, we were watching drone footage from about six feet off the ground. And so there were literally you know, shoulders that we couldn't see over in the churches. We were with them. We knew the names of the churches. We knew their cities. We knew their struggles. We knew the names of congregants in the churches. We were right there with them. But then there were these little glimpses of the eternal state that was promised to those who conquer that it was, it was like it didn't even make sense until we began to read the rest of the book. There were some things there that were really hard to grasp. Well, now that we've come to the other end, we're seeing all of those little glimpses opened up. Fully. Here we got two entire chapters explaining all of those strange things from chapters 2 and 3. The picture of the church in this final vision is now described sort of like the eternal state was described in chapters 2 and 3. You read it and you're like, that doesn't sound like the church age at all. This is really confusing. The hardest thing to understand in this final vision is where is the church at the present time? I think the hardest thing to understand in chapters 2 and 3 was... What is the eternal state? You know, what, what is the white stone? Questions like that that we had to try to answer. Well, the end of the book opens that stuff up. For example, and I'll, I'll walk through the seven, the endings of those seven addresses in the first vision. In chapter 2, verse 7, we, we read, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now at that point, if that's all that we read, we might say, Tree of life. That's Garden of Eden talk. We're, we're way past that. Paradise, we're way past that. What, what does that mean? Well, when we get to chapter 22, we literally see the tree of life 
in the paradise of God. Now, who were the conquerors? They were those who were faithful unto death. They were the saints of God who attained to that eternal state. In chapter 2, verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if that's all we had, we would say, second death? What's that? Well, when we get to chapter 21, it explicitly says it. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It follows the judgment. Chapter 2, verse 17, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Again, we would say, the manna, you know, we're in the New Testament. We've gone past that. What's the manna deal? Well, in chapter 11, John saw the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God, remember? But then when we get to this end vision, chapter 21, <clears throat> there is no temple because God is there present as the temple. And so to eat the heavenly manna is to live upon and by God in His eternal presence forever. Christ is the bread who comes down from heaven. Revelation 2.26, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. What does that mean? Well, in chapter 20 we saw dead saints already given authority and reigning with Christ in the present time, even prior to being glorified. In chapter 3 verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Again, chapter 19, the white garments were wedding garments. And in chapter 21, the church, the whole bride is adorned as a wife prepared for her husband. She's adorned in the wedding garments. In chapter 3, verse 12, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So there we saw that these victorious saints who are faithful to the end, they are essentially or will attain essentially to, to being part and parcel with the temple of God. They're, they're, it's almost like they are the, the stones that have built this temple. Well, when we see that new Jerusalem in chapter 21 coming down of heaven, out of heaven, it's the church. But again, there is no temple in that city for God is the temple. And so again, the, the picture is that the saints who attain to that are eternally fixed and settled in and with God forever. There is no temple. There is no, there is no location where the people go to be with God. He is everywhere with His people and they are with Him. Chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. We see dead saints reigning with Christ on thrones. Who are the conquerors? These are the ones who are faithful unto death. You're faithful unto death. Then you become the conqueror, seated on the throne, reigning with Christ. So hopefully you can see, at least in these, these two bookend visions, chapters 2 and 3 on one end, and chapters 20 to 22 on the other end, that we're not seeing really anything new. We're merely seeing what we saw in the early chapters opened up, explained, and presented more clearly. Chapters 2 and 3 were heavy-weighted on the present church age. 
and the specific issues that those churches were dealing with. But when we come to the end of the book, they're heavy weighted on the eternal state. But why? What, what, is, what, is, what is God in His Word always trying to get us to do? Our eyes are here and He's saying, give me your chin and look up. Look here. Stop looking here. Look here. Where's our comfort? It's not here. It's here. Look up. He's drawing us up out of that vision of what, all that we can see to, to let us know, I see something you can't see. Look and see what I see. That's the comfort. It's the wisdom of God in bringing comfort to His saints in a masterful way. In the first vision, we're comforted by this fact. Christ walks in the midst of His lampstands. He knows every issue. He knows every concern. He knows every name. He knows all of the matters that will face every one of His churches. But as we move through the book, He says, I see all of that. Now I need you to stop focusing on just that and look up to what I have prepared for those who love me. So He, again, controls the plot. Thirdly, I want to explain how this seventh vision completes what began in the fourth vision. Remember that the revelation is broken up not only in seven visions, but also in two major sections, verses, chapters 1 to 11, chapters 12 to 22. Two major sections. And the second section is the one that describes the underlying enmity that produced all of the hostility that we saw in the first, the first major section. The persecution of the saints in the present time. And we saw that the bedrock of all of the church's afflictions from the world is actually the enmity that exists between Satan and Christ. That's where it starts. The overflow of it and the fruit of it is, is shown in the persecution and suffering of the church, as we've said many times, and hopefully you'll be able to repeat this at some point. Satan hates Christ. Satan hates the people of Christ. Ephesians 2, lost men are sons of disobedience following Satan, following the prince of the power of the air. That's them. Therefore, lost men following Satan are going to be used as his pawns to inflict injury upon the bride of Christ. Every unregenerate person that you know is a son of disobedience. They are and will always follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. They're followers of Satan. Now why is there this enmity between Satan and Christ? Well, the picture given in Scripture, as we saw a few weeks ago, it boils down to pride boils down to pride. Satan's desire is to be like God. He wants to rule. He wants the authority. He wants the top place. Remember, Eden is a mountain. He wants the top of the mountain. So he comes to the top of the mountain. He wants that place. He wanted it in Eden and he still wants it. God made Adam and gave him the mandate to take dominion. Satan don't like that. Imagine, again, an angel greater than us in being, in, in nature, looks at these creatures made of dirt and says, you're going to give them dominion? He doesn't like that, you see. He goes after Adam, and obviously Adam falls. And so in that moment, God promised another, capital A, another, who would come to fulfill 
the dominion mandate and destroy the works of the devil. You ever notice the dominion mandate is not repeated after the fall? It's because there's only one who can fulfill it now. It was either Adam number one or Adam number two. It's been given to Christ. So what does the devil do? This is where we picked up in Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 4, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her children or her child, he might devour it. Remember, Satan's goal from the very beginning, from Genesis 3 onward, was to stop this promised seed from coming into the world. Why? Because he wants control. If the seed is to be the offspring of Eve, which he heard that, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring. What? Her offspring? Oh, another, another dirt creature. That's what you're going to do. Okay, I've got this. I'll just stop that one from coming into the world. That was his, his scheme, his plan. If the seed is to be the offspring of Eve, then perhaps he can foil the plans of God again. So he pursues or he tries to stop the woman from giving birth. In chapter 12, we saw this enmity. He wants to stop the seed and he fails. She gives birth to the child and he's taken up into the heavens. He is glorified and ascends to his throne. In chapter 12, verses 7 to 12, remember we saw that Christ defeats and throws down the devil in His earthly ministry, culminating in His death and resurrection. Now the hour has come. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. That was what Christ said in John 12. As He goes to the cross, He recognizes this is the throwing down of Satan. In verses 13 to 17, Satan went after the church through what? Rivers of deception coming out of his mouth. And he's always a failure because the church is being nourished to health and vigor by God. She's in the wilderness being nourished. And remember, the image is not that she's got an IV in her arm giving her just a drip here and there of, the, of the, what she needs. No, she's being nourished, strengthened, built to health and vigor at the present time. What was the chief method that the serpent was going to use? In this deception, chapter 13, he uses the beasts. He uses human kingdoms to exacerbate and aggravate the carnal lusts of men so that they despise, persecute, and kill the saints who will not join in their idolatry, which is what we saw in chapters 2 and 3. So think about this. Chapter 12 was the last time that we saw the serpent except for a brief mention of the dragon in chapter 16. So if we could think of the book in a, in a big, almost like a movie, there in chapter 12, we saw, we, you can imagine, the, the tail of the serpent slithering over a hill in the wilderness. He's gone after the woman and her offspring. And, he, and he's just gone. Well, what is he going to do? Well, the next thing you see are these beasts. Well, that's not the serpent. What's, what's happening? The serpent is using these beasts. He's gone to make war on the church. And again, other than those frogs coming out of his mouth, that was the last time that we saw the serpent, the dragon. What happened to him? What's the outcome? What's going to happen to the church that he's pursuing? How, how would the saints of God, reading this in the first century, have been comforted by that picture? What we're going to see in these early verses of chapter 20 is that though this dragon has gone off to make war, and he will use the beasts to inflict great suffering, the dragon cannot stop what Christ is doing through his church. Why? Christ said, I will build my church. The only institution that he's ever promised to build that will endure forever is the church. He says, I'm going to build it. And so from the very beginning, Satan has despised the idea 
that God would create image bearers out of dirt, lower than Himself in being and majesty, and give them charge over the created realm. He ruined Adam and our race in the beginning, but He wasn't able to stop the promise of God from being fulfilled in another image bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Adam failed to do and what Israel typified, Christ has accomplished and is still accomplishing through, quote, the rest of her offspring, which is the church in the present time. And here I realize as I was writing this out, that I'm mixing things that we've seen in our confessional study and in the Revelation recently with regard to the church. But again, according to Ephesians 3, the plan hidden for prior ages in God is that the earth would be full of the image and glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and that this would take place through the church. That's the mystery. The Holy Spirit indwelt image bearers of God, 1 Corinthians 11, man is the glory of God, image bearers of God multiplying themselves through the preaching of the gospel. That's the mystery. And that's what Satan wants to keep from happening. He wants to stop that. The problem is, since the first advent of Christ and His death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Satan has been severely limited in his aspirations and abilities. Maybe not his aspirations, but his abilities. He cannot stop the plan of God. For no purpose of God's can be thwarted. Not in you, not in me, not in this church, not in any church, not in the world. The purpose of God can't be stopped. He started it. Everything that's happening in history, it's His idea. He decreed it from ancient times. But that was the picture that we were left in in chapter 12. This beast is going to make war, or this, this dragon is, is going to make war. But then we see these beasts in chapter 13. We see Babylon riding on the back of the beast in chapter 17. But Babylon is destroyed in chapter 18. And the saints of God are still sitting here thinking, okay, that sounds great, but what about the dragon? Babylon was riding on the backs of the beast who were tools of the dragon. What about the dragon? The dragon's got to go. He's the problem. It was the dragon in the first century who was using the Roman imperial cult and the local patron cults and the trade guild deity cults to persecute and kill Christians. It is good to see that Babylon's going to fall. But what about the serpent? Chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All of a sudden in chapter 20, the dragon pops back up. See, you see, you put the picture together. The dragon has been working this whole time. But now we get to see what's actually been going on with this dragon as we've been reading the story. And again, this scene of the dragon is not chronologically after chapter 12. It's parallel with chapter 12. In chapter 12, the imagery of Satan's defeat was that he was thrown down. When? In the ministry of Christ. In chapter 20, the imagery of Satan's defeat is that of being seized and bound. And these are, remember, symbols. They're not 
literal actions. The Satan is not, or the devil is not a dragon. He's a demon, a spiritual being, an angel. So then, if we wanted to ask, as we begin to consider verses 1 to 6, if we wanted to ask, what is the church age? The present time in which we live, the time that these churches lived in, the time that we live in, what is it? How are the saints of the first century or the 21st century supposed to think about the time in which we live between these two advents of Christ, where we know the serpent is off to make war, but at the same time he is in some way restricted? How should we think about it? I would say, here's how we should think about it. We live in the time of the glorious reign of grace where the mystery hidden for ages in God is being manifested and His image is being propagated over the whole earth through the preaching of the gospel and in and through gospel churches. Now we would ask again, how can this be? If Satan has been thrown down, he's now focusing his efforts on the offspring, he knows that his time is short, he's like a ravaging animal, how can we say with any optimism, well, this is the, this is the time of the reign of grace? While Satan is using his efforts against the church, which surely issues forth in deception and perversions of all sorts, and certainly leads to persecution and suffering, he cannot stop the spread of the gospel. He cannot stop Christ's temple building project. As he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We might as well ask, well, how can Christ redeem sinners if He's hanging on that cross? Well, the answer is, keep watching. Keep watching. It's about to get good. Paul says in Ephesians 3, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles, here's the mystery, the Gentiles, and I would encourage you if you'd like in, in the New Testament, and we'll do this in the weeks to come, when you see that word Gentiles, read nations. That's what the word is. It's the word nations. This is the mystery, that the nations are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I hope to show in the coming weeks that the great emphasis of gathering the nations, as we've just heard, as we see throughout the Psalms, the emphasis of gathering the nations in the Old Testament was considered fulfilled and being fulfilled by the apostles in the New Testament. Why? Because the gospel was and is going forth. God is doing what He said He was going to do. As I pointed out yesterday in the book of Acts, they said there were men from every nation under heaven gathered in Jerusalem. No, there wasn't. There, there weren't. That's a lie. Or every nation under heaven meant something to the apostles and they then begin to open that up and apply it. And they said, it's happening. It's happening. The gospel has gone to the nations. Then the Spirit has been poured out amongst the nations also. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that. They saw it. It's happening. Why? Because Christ has ascended. Christ has conquered. The nations are being gathered. Now sometimes it can seem very bleak 
when we look at the world around us. But we have to remember that the work of the kingdom of Christ goes forth in ways that cannot be observed. There are churches in places we've never heard of. That's hard for us to grasp, I think, sometimes. There are Christians that are not in America, that are not of the West. There are churches being planted in places you'll never see. You can't pronounce the name of them. You couldn't get there. You don't have the right equipment to get to where they are. The gospel's going forth to nations. It's happening. Converts are being made around the world. As we say many times, look at us. We're sitting here. People with white skin. Westerners. It's worked. It's working. The nations are flowing to Christ. Even in our own private lives, we, we see the evidence of the sanctifying power of the Word of God being applied by the Spirit of God in ways that nobody will ever see. We're the only ones who know it. And if it's going to be useful to anybody else, we have to open up our mouths and sort of bear witness about it. You know, the Lord's really doing this. And then we look and we say, oh, you weren't that bad. And you're like, yeah, no, not really. The Lord is doing a work. You might not be able to see it, but He's doing it. It's, it's, it's coming in ways that can't be observed all the time. The Spirit of God is working to eradicate the effects of the fall even in us. And I think we do Christ a great disservice when we disparage His work in the world because it doesn't look like what we expect. That was the error of the Jews that Christ repeatedly corrected in His preaching. Well, let's go and make Him king. No, I'm already king. We don't make Christ king according to our wishes. We bow to Him as king according to His commandments. So in, in seeing this seventh vision as paralleled with the fourth vision in that way, then hopefully we see even more the importance of those exhortations that were in that fourth vision. Chapter 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. What does endurance imply? It implies difficulty. It implies adversity. It implies it's not going to get easy right now. So you must endure. There isn't a single text in all of Scripture that would lead any one of us to include that the life of a child of God in this world in any generation after the fall or before the return of Christ will be easy or peaceful. Not one. Everything in the Scripture explains the exact opposite. Now, if your life is not as hard as the life of somebody else, then you can count that as the mercy of God. But that's not promised to anyone. This is why the saints of God need endurance. And that's not some carnal, fleshy ability to put up with circumstances that are less than favorable. This endurance is the work of God the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of patient endurance. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, enduring, bearing up under hardship. The Spirit has to do it in us. It's a manifestation of the kingdom. How do we increase in this grace of sanctified endurance? Romans 5 Rejoice in your sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. I don't feel like I could endure very much. Well, you need to suffer some more. Endurance not only implies hardship, it requires hardship. Suffering produces endurance. Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance implies the passing of time. 
You're going to have to endure for a while. This is an active verb. You're going to have to keep on doing it. Endure. And after you have endured, you will receive the promise. Not before, but after. Romans 2, those who by endurance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Luke 21, Jesus said, You will be hated by all for My name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endure. Push through it. Now what is the chief motivation here? Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we expect to join Christ at God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore, then we have to walk the path that's been marked out by Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on Him. Always as if He were just up the way. We keep our eyes fixed on Him. And there are times when He he rounds the corner and you might lose a sight, but that means you speed up. And there are other times when He seems like He's in arm's reach, but you keep pressing forward. You're always chasing Christ. It's pursuing Christ that sanctifies the suffering and increases our endurance. We're not chasing heaven. We're not chasing a new world or a a moralized world or an ethical world. That's not what we're chasing. We're chasing a person. His name is Jesus the Christ. He's our God. We worship Him. We adore Him. We obey Him. We take refuge in Him. He's our atoning Lamb. The only sacrifice for sins. And He's our exemplar. We follow Him in all things. In September of this year, as far as I can count, our church will be 10 years old. Now that's not a very old church in in the grand scheme of churches and and things like that. And I was told early on that uh, if you're going to plant a church, you probably shouldn't expect to see very much fruit until about the 10th or 11th year. We're, We're not very young. We've not attained. We have need of endurance. We might, beginning to, 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 we might be beginning to get to the point where we're beginning to face some things where we're going to have to start enduring, if I could put it that way. Now's not the time to, to, to relax. Now's not the time to, to, to coast. We fix our eyes upon Christ and chase Him. We have to endure. Let's pray.